Welcome. You've arrived at Rockadinia U. Where the garage ends, Beethoven rolls over, and the ivory tower meets the street. Today's podcast, Visions of Bob Dylan's Visions of Johanna. Your lecturer, me, J.B. And now we're back in late May of 1966 at the Royal Albert Hall in London, where our Nobel Prize winner is introducing what former Brit poet laureate Andrew Motion called, quote-unquote, the best song lyric ever written. Let's uh, listen I'm in. I'm not going to be playing any more concerts here in England, and I just wanted to say that, uh, that uh, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's all wrong to... Uh, to uh, uh, this is a typical example of probably one song that your English music newspapers here would call a drug song. Like, well, I, don't, I don't write drug songs. You know, like I never have. I wouldn't know how to go about it. But, you know, uh, th- this is not a drug song. I'm not saying it's for any kind of defensive reason or anything like that. It's just not a drug song. I don't mean it's just vulgar to think so. Yeah. Yes, all right. Now, leaving aside whether Mr. Tamarine Man knew how to write drug songs, he never has denied now and then being on the train line and having his senses stripped. In any event, even though by the time of Blonde on Blonde, the classic 1966 album that Visions of Johanna is part of, Dylan was writing many superlative drug songs, despite not knowing how to, he's telling the truth about Visions of Johanna. It's not a drug song, despite the title, and it's vulgar to think so, or at least misguided. In actuality, It's a profound exploration of existential conundrums involving love versus lust, connection versus isolation, and ultimately loss. It's probably the best argument for why Dylan deserves to be ranked among the literary greats, a work of untutored genius if ever there were one. Now, to give a plot overview, this song is about the speaker's visit to a prostitute as a substitute for the lover he's lost, Johanna which has a special clarity and poignancy if you think Joan Baez, but don't lose sight of the deeper universal truths. And what we're going to do is listen to an outtake that was released in 2015 as part of the Cutting Edge, Volume 12 of the Bootleg series. This driving version was recorded with the band. The first verse begins with him in the whorehouse, or possibly the Chelsea Hotel, that iconic residence of artists that also features Lops. Let's listen. Like the night you played tricks when you're trying to be quiet. We're sitting here stranded, though we're all doing our best to deny it. And Louise holds a hand full of rain, tapping you to defy it. Flicker from the opposite love 
In this room the heat vibes they carve The country music station plays soft But there's nothing, really nothing to turn off Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the first stanza, I'd like to pause here and give credit where credit is due. The heart of my interpretation, and certainly a revelation for me when I read it back in the days when I thought being forever young was a distinct possibility, comes from an essay titled Lover's Emotion, an Analysis of Visions of Johanna by Chuck Hirsch. It was in a fanzine called Talking Bob Zimmerman Blues, dated 1976. Before I read it, I have to admit I was just about like everyone else in assuming the song was just about another psychedelic experience, maybe another Mr. Tamarine Man or something like that. But in reading it, I gained an entirely new perspective not only on the song, but on what songs could be. The doors of perception had been opened, as they say. And I know I'm not the only one, because Robin Hitchcock, in doing a couple live albums of Dylan covers, cited Visions of Johanna as the one song that inspired him to write songs. And now to the nitty-gritty. In the first line, the knight is playing tricks on the speaker. Why? Because there's only one physical woman with him, and yet he's seeing two. The prostitute Louise and the ghost, Johanna, will be introduced towards the end of the stanza. The word tricks, of course, puns on the slang term for what the prostitute is doing. Now, the second line poses the existential dilemma of the speaker and all humankind when he says, we sit here stranded, though we all do our best to deny it, quote-unquote. What he's getting at here is that we're born alone and we die alone, though much of our lives we try to evade that raw truth and all the dread and quiet desperation that attend it, starting with trying to entwine ourselves with the other, be that people, pets, supreme beings, Siri or Alexa. More immediately, the speaker is stranded from Johanna and trying to evade that loneliness and sorrow by getting it on with the prostitute. The third line has Dylan doing a symbolic high-wire act. Louise holds a handful of rain, tempting you, or him, to defy it, quote-unquote. The first linguistic feat here is the inversion of T.S. Eliot's celebrated line from the wasteland, quote, I will show you fear in a handful of dust, unquote. There, the dust symbolizing mortality. Perhaps not so coincidentally, the wasteland and its companion, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, also dealt to some extent with existential love-lust themes. Dylan's handful of rain, however, symbolizes the opposite of death, fertility, the life force rooted in sexual power. Louise is defying him to allow his sorrow for Johanna to keep him from this most primal urge for human connection. The word rain symbolizes not only the speaker's sorrow, but also the reins Louise has over him, because he's come to her in desperation and handed himself over to her. Now the next three lines build on the themes of isolation and depression. That the speaker is distracted by how lights flicker in the opposite loft, and heat pipes just cough while the radio plays soft, 
tells us that Louise has yet to earn his full attention. This is confirmed when the next line says, quote, and there's nothing really nothing to turn up, unquote. Why? Because in this inventive and colloquial play on words, he's not turned on by Louise's seductions. And why is that the case, even though he and Louise are entwined? Because of the visions of Johanna that conquer his mind, that phantom woman playing tricks on him, and note the pun on tricks. So long as she's in his head, what's turned off are him and Louise, the objectified lover who's somehow hovering outside of his entanglement with her. Now, let's turn our attention to the second stanza, where the speaker reflects on the situation with Louise while also describing the sexual lives of the prostitutes. When he mentions Louise, you'll know you're in the second half of the stanza. And for an example of empathetic accompaniment, listen to how the spectral organ echoes that ghost of electricity that howls in the bones of her face. In the empty lot where the ladies play, blind man's bluff with the keychain. Watchman, click his flashlight, ask himself if it's him or them that's insane. Louise, she's alright, she's just near. She's delicate and seems like the mirror. But she just makes it all too concise and too clear that Johanna's not here. Now, to continue the love-lust conundrum. As we'll see, the speaker seems to think that love and lust are intertwined. But the whore, who is well-practiced in the art of lust without love, knows better. For her, it's all about mechanics. The line about playing blind man's bluff with a keychain might seem nonsensical at a glance, but if you think of women as keyholes and men as keys, you can see what he's getting at. As an aside, you also need sensitivity training. For prostitutes, men are interchangeable, like skeleton keys. As Tina Turner sang, what's love got to do with it? Show them the money, you got the key to their, well, you know it's not their heart. Meanwhile, the line about the all-night girls on the D-train reinforces the freewheeling attitude the prostitutes have about sex, one the speaker doesn't share. In the next two lines, the speaker hears the night watchman on his rounds and thinks he can read his mind. Quote, Ask himself if it's him or them that's really insane, unquote. The speaker realizes that society believes something's wrong with men like him who seek solace and horrors, and he wonders about himself. Now the speaker turns to Louise. Quote, she's all right, she's just near, unquote. In other words, there's nothing special or specially wrong about her. But she's here while Johanna's not. I love the one you're with, right? That she's described as delicate suggests that she's not hard-bitten and that the speaker has some empathy for her. But she's like the mirror, a reflection of his pitiable condition. 
making it, quote, all too concise and too clear that Johanna's not here, unquote. Now the next off-quoted line brings home the trick. The ghost of electricity howls in the bones of her face, quote-unquote. That's Johanna's face, but now it's howling in Louisa's face. And this haunting vision makes it impossible for the narrator to get it up. If you're interested in the Baez connection, check out the cover of her Farewell Angelina album to see that ghost of electricity howling in the bones of her face. For the third stanza, we'll go back to the Albert Hall version we started with, as Dylan's strung-out vocal seems perfectly suited to the theme. Note here how, in a brilliant stroke of genius, Dylan shifts the point of view from the speaker to the prostitute. Now it's the latter being objectified. Pay special attention to the attitude that the prostitute has towards the speaker, her customer. Little boy lost, he takes himself so seriously. He brags of his misery. He likes to live dangerously. And when bringing her name up, he speaks of her farewell kiss to me. He sure got a lot of gall. To be so useless and all Muttering small talk at the wall While I'm in the hall Oh, how can I explain It's so hard to get on Well, as any longtime fan of Dylan Live shows could tell you, those were the days when he remembered all the words. At any rate, how does Louise regard the speaker? Well, he's a little boy lost. A little boy because he can't perform like a man. Lost because he's anchorless and estranged, plus outside the reach of her charms taking himself far too seriously. He brags of his misery as if she's supposed to care or be impressed and blathering on about Johanna and her farewell kiss. How quaint and romantic. Only a little boy would carry on that way. Louise knows that love is just a four-letter word. More to the point, he's got a lot of gall muttering what amounts to small talk at the wall because she's stone deaf to all that romantic nonsense. Well, meanwhile, despite her best efforts to get him hard, hard to get on, quote-unquote, the visions have kept her up past the dawn, all that time and money being lost on such a client. Interestingly enough, for years in live performance, Dylan has combined the last line of this stanza with the initial lines of the fourth stanza, rarely performing all the verses as he did in 66. Guess it goes to show that, like T.S. Eliot, among others, our Shakespeare in the Alley isn't the best editor of his own work. Now the fourth stanza will return us to the speaker. Given all the emphasis he's given to his own sorrow and loneliness, 
it would be natural to assume that he was the jilted one. But in this stanza, it becomes increasingly clear that to the contrary, he jilted her, at least in all likelihood. Now let's turn our attention to the series of rationalizations the speaker gives for his betrayal. Again, the band version. Inside the museums, infinity goes up on trial. Voices echo, this is what salvation must be like after a while. Now, these quintessential and cryptic Dylan lines pose quite the interpretive challenge. But let's give a shot to decoding them nonetheless. Now, if you think about art museums, what do they do if not freeze or preserve paintings in their ideal state for perpetuity? Just as salvation is about preserving your perfected soul forever. Hence, the voices echoing about salvation. Now, in the context of the song, Infinity going up on trial inside the museums is evocative of the eternal commitment true love requires and that the speaker is putting up on trial. To borrow from the artist formerly known as Prince in his Let's Go Crazy, forever is a mighty long time, quote-unquote. Hence, the speaker proclaims, Mona Lisa must have had the highway blues, you can tell by the way she smiles, quote-unquote. In other words, He wants out of the eternal commitment. Instead of being frozen in one place like the painting, he'd rather hit the highway. In deserting Johanna, he not only has to deal with being sad and alone, he's also saddled with the guilt of having forsaken her. He knows that what he's done will shock many. In fact, his jolting action causes the man with the mustache to say, geez, I can't find my knees, quote-unquote as if to say something he's relied upon and always thought would be there is suddenly gone. Now, if you think of the Picasso collage, Man with Mustache, which includes button, vest, and pipe, where the man's knees are impossible to find, you'd have an idea of how disorienting the experience can be. But the speaker has a ready rationalization. Quote, Jewels and binoculars hang from the head of the mule, unquote. Now, the jewels of the binoculars suggest a prospector, someone always on the lookout for the next treasure to exploit. The speaker is mule-headed and stubborn in wanting to be free of Johanna to find new treasures. He's independent, though, unchained, with the jewels of his past love and a pair of binoculars, not just to look back with, but to scope out new treasures with. The only trouble is, the visions of Johanna make his exploitation seem so cruel. As an aside, 
If you want to see the influence of that line, check out the mule in the binocs on the cover of the Rolling Stones' Get Your Yayas Out. Now the fifth stanza ties it all together and is a tour de force to rival the best of poems. As any frequent Dylan concert goer knows, he's hit or miss with his rendition of songs, but every so often he'll stun you with a drop-dead version. For this final stanza, I thought I'd play a stellar performance he did in Granada, Spain in 1999. Maybe he was thinking of those boots of Spanish leather, but you could tell from the first chords he was on that night. Let's listen. rationalizations continue with the speaker telling Louise that everybody's a parasite feeding off of others, and if they're not, he'll go out and say a prayer for them, because they stand little chance in this world. The peddler image reinforces the prospector image of stanza four. The speaker is a peddler, selling himself, his stories, his songs to survive. He's a parasite who's fed off of Johanna and now is feeding off of Louise, who herself is a parasite, only pretending to care for him, a fake countess. As for the Baez connection, she was the queen of folk, so the countess is a diminished embodiment of her. In any event, the rationalizations have had their effect because the speaker now has an erection as he looks at Louise, who makes fun of him. You can't look at much, man, she says as she prepares for him. But to bring the moment to its climax, some more rationalization is needed, which Dylan accommodates by adding extra lines to the stanza. So in the next line, we hear that Madonna, the idealized Johanna, now a virginal counterpart to the carnal Louise, still hasn't showed, suggesting that she perhaps has abandoned him as well. She's not there, and her ghost has vanished. The empty cage now corrodes where her cape of the stage once had flowed. In other words, there's freedom for both him and Johanna. Here the stage where they reigned as the king and queen of folk is analogous to a cage, those roles and the obligations that attended them are outmoded, the cage corroding and the two songbirds having flown their separate ways. The fiddler, the speaker as musician and peddler of songs, steps to the road. He's got the highway blues like Mona Lisa and the Prospector. On the back of an imaginary fish truck that loads, he scrawls his final rationalization. Everything's been returned that was owed. 
When you think of fish, think of fertility and the fish-like quality of sperm. This sexual fertility comes to fruition when in the masterful line that follows, his quote-unquote conscience explodes. The very moment he expels all the guilt and sorrow from his conscience, he ejaculates. For a moment there is sexual harmony, and we see the return of the key and rain symbols. Quote, the harmonicas play the skeleton keys and the rain, unquote. Note the great pun on skeleton keys, now an evocation of musical and sexual harmony in addition to being a key that opens all doors. But in the very last line, we see the harmony is short-lived. He might have purged his guilt enough to fulfill his sexual urges, but the visions of Johanna and of bygone love are all that remains. The speaker, like the lover in Sharon Ohl's remarkable poem, Sex Without Love, is a single body alone in the universe against its own best time. Perhaps it's not love, but lust, that's the four-letter word. In any event, the profound conclusion ranks with the Till Human Voices Wake Us and We Drown ending in T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock and its unflinching depiction of our human predicament. That Dylan can be so despairing in the Granada version and others of recent vintage makes us wonder if after all the triumphs, traveling, and women, he's not like Citizen Kane with his deathbed invocation of Rosebud his childhood sled, still pining for the time in his life when he was in love and always right with the world. Now, as a coda, I thought I'd share with you an excerpt from a national public radio show called Sound Opinions, based in Chicago. Here the hosts, Greg Codd and Jim DeRogatis, venture forth their two cents worth on Blonde on Blonde and Visions of Johanna in particular. I leave you to decide if their opinions are indeed sound, especially when they talk about the lyrics. Cod describes being introduced to Blonde on Blonde in a dorm room. Blonde on Blonde, though, entered my life in one of those late-night listening sessions, and uh, this song in particular was the one that <laughs> so sort of stuck I, with I me. got my copy from, the, from that beatnik. That's what he gave me for yeah, Christmas. there you go, Blonde <laughs> on Blonde. Everybody's got to have Blonde on Blonde, man. Um, but, I, you know, I couldn't get through the voice and everything. I, you know, I didn't understand this guy. I mean, what that voice, you know? Why, why would anybody want to listen to this guy? I can't really sing. And then I... The atmosphere of this record and, and the next song that I'm going to play you is, is, is what really sort of just drew me in completely. The intimacy of this performance, Visions of Johanna. Um, to me, earlier, uh, Jim, you remember when we played, um, I think it was the, the Flamingos, I Only Have Eyes for You. Mm-hmm. You know, that song, that atmosphere, that sort of yeah. like intimacy that was there. That 50s doo-wop recording. I hear that same sort of intimacy in this recording. Uh, by Bob Dylan. Pitch um, black at night, somebody's whispering in your ear. A guy who's talking about somebody who's not there. Mm-hmm. Visions of Johanna. He's talking about this woman who is not there. Mm-hmm. And we've all been there. Uh, the one thing that's amazing about this track, and I've said this before about Dylan, is that he's kind of underrated in the way he uses the studio. A lot of people think he sort of is slapdash about mm-hmm. the way he records stuff. But you listen to the way the rhythm section is recorded on this particular song, this guy Kenny Buttry that he was playing with on drums, the way he uses the cymbal accents to sort of accent what Dylan's talking about, Al Cooper once again playing organ on this Mm -hmm. track, the way he responds to some of the lines in the songs. There are no solos per se, but every instrument has a role in this particular track. And and some of the lines, the the ghost of electricity howls in the bones of her face. Mm -hmm. And you listen to the way Cooper answers that line with his organ playing. I mean, it's phenomenal. I don't know what that line means, but it's just so mysterious and fantastic. Well, that's, that's the other thing. You know, all those, those, those damn 
college uh, yeah. uh, English majors. Yeah. Let them, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to mean anything. I think Dylan, in a very rock and roll way, understands that sometimes you just say a word because of the way it sounds. And the way it sounds, absolutely. Uh, it's something that David Byrne understood, something that uh, well, the all, beat the, poets all the great songwriters I mean, you don't, you, you don't read Burroughs for... Uh, you know his, his eloquence and his message. You read mm. him for the rhythm, right? You know, and, you, and same thing with Kerouac. I don't understand why these the people have been analyzing Dylan's lyrics for so long. And the rhythm is precisely the exact right word, Jim. Because when people say he's not a great singer, well, they're not paying attention to how he's saying his words. <laughs> he's actually how he's the first rapper. <laughs> he really is. I mean, the guy's got a five note range. That's yeah. not a whole hell of a lot more than a, an, the average rapper has. Right. Uh, but uh, fantastic phrasing and 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 the humor again. But Mona Lisa must have had the highway blues. You can tell by the way she smiles. I mean, he's slipping in these lines all over the place. Guess all I can say to that is praise be that he is. Gives us English major something worth taxing our idle brains for. Praise be too to the Chuck Hirsches, Nat Hentos, Robert Hilburns, Michael Grays, Grail Marcuses, Bill Pagels, Expecting Rains, and countless other Dylan Dakotas. Because as Walt Whitman once said, great artists need great audiences. But ultimately, the most praise has to go to Dylan himself who set such a high standard that he himself can't always meet it, much less all the imitators trying to steal him blind in the foothills of Mount Dillon-Manjaro. In closing, if Dylan was haunted by Johanna, perhaps she was haunted by him. We end with a clip from Joan Baez's Diamonds and Rust, which she recorded in the mid-70s after a phone call from Dylan. Well, I'll be damned, here comes your ghost again. that the moon is full and you happen to call and here I sit and on the telephone hearing a voice I'd known you've been listening to Visions of Visions of Johanna assuming you haven't already opted for an exit ramp of course a production of my pet project Rockademia U All wrongs righted, all rights reserved, 2019.